I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Professor Damien Hughes is one of the UK's leading experts on how to create a high-performance culture. Hughes has consulted and interviewed some of the world's greatest ever sports teams and individuals. You're going to hear what all these people have in common and how it relates to you. Hope you enjoyed the episode. It's holiday season and that means that there are stockings to be filled and this week's episode sponsor, Manscaped, has gone global with the tools to guarantee a very Merry Christmas. Manscaped is the leader in men's below-the-waist grooming and they've served more than 4 million men worldwide. That's almost 8 million balls. Manscaped's best-selling product is the Performance Package 4.0, which is at the top of every man's wish list this year. Small enough to fit in a stocking, big enough to change a man's life. Whether this is for you, your partner, dad, brother, friend, get them something that they will actually use and is almost guaranteed to get a laugh. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code ARS20. Be the ballsiest gift giver this year with Manscaped. Professor Damien Hughes, thanks for coming on the show, mate. It's a pleasure, Andy. I'm really, really excited to be here, so thanks for having me. No, no worries. Your podcast is flying. It's not usual that I'd get a, another podcaster on here and talk about podcasting and talk about how great their podcast is, but... Jesus, you guys have gone from zero to 100 real quick. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we're really proud of it. I think it's similar to your world in terms of what you're doing, Andy, with the podcast, that I think when you've got a passion at the heart of it, you know what it's like. It's that you're not doing it to make money out of a podcast or anything like that. You're doing it one, one day, hopefully, yeah, but, maybe, not, not, but not for a long time. Yeah, but it, but yeah. it does take a long time, that work yeah. in the shadows. You've got to be passionate about it right from the start. Eh? Yeah, so the thing that sustains you right from the start is that I just love doing this. And I think that's consistent for me and Jake that we both love the mm. content. We love having these conversations with high performers and not and just simply asking, how do you do what you do? Mm. And more importantly, how can others take it from it? So it's just been a real passion project. So we've uh, speak on behalf of Jake as well as myself on this one that we've both just loved it. Your role, because obviously you've got Jake who's broadcasting background. Yeah. Your role is more of the, you've got the academic hands-on background almost. You're a professor in high yeah. performance, right? Is that is that? Yeah, so my background is that I'm a visiting professor of um, organisational psychology and change at Manchester Met. So when people say, well, what does that involve? So my background is that looking at sort of high-performing cultures, so I tend to work, I've worked a lot in the sort of world of elite sport with coaches that people listening to this might have heard coaches talk about, oh, we've got a good culture at our place, or we've got a high-performing culture, or you'll often hear rumours from the dressing room of a toxic culture. Mm. So the term culture gets used an awful lot. And my job is almost distilling that down and saying, well, what type of culture do you have? And what type of culture do you want? And how do we get there? And looking at lots of different strands of it. So that's very much uh, the nature of the work that I do. Let's just go back to where you started, because you, your old man was into high performance, wasn't he? 
Yeah, definitely. So my background is a little bit unusual, I suppose, is the best way of describing it. So long before I was even born, um, my dad had set up a boxing gym in inner city of Manchester. So anyone listening to this might have sort of like a stereotype idea of what a inner city boxing gym looks like. It's in a tough, gritty inner city area, a lot of social deprivation around it. And that's exactly what the gym that I grew up in sort of fits that stereotype. So it's not a badge of honour, but a few years ago, the area where we grew up was christened as like the third poorest district in Europe. But the boxing gym that my dad had set up was almost like an oasis within that area that it was seen as a place where people could come, they could be respected, they could be valued, they could learn some really uh, valuable lessons for life. And it wasn't necessary to step foot into a boxing ring to do that. But what also happened was there were some guys that came in there that went through to become Olympic champions from the local community, guys that went on to become British, European and world boxing yeah. champions. Your old man coached like eight world champions or something, didn't he? Is it? That's right, yeah. So I was around that for as far back as I was just there and I was like, surely it can't be that many. I was like, yeah, you know, no, it did, yeah. a lot. Yeah, so I was around that from, like that was literally my playground growing up. When I became an adult, when I went down and started going into further education, I remember one of my lecturers had this great phrase where he said, we don't do research, we tend to do me-search, where we try and make sense of our lives right. and say, well, what shaped us? And it was only as an adult I started to appreciate the experiences I'd had. And, and I think it was twofold, really. One was my fascination is in terms of culture, and I sometimes describe that as the work in the shadows. So seeing the guys fight under the bright lights never intimidated me or never particularly impressed me. What always in impressed me was the work that had gone on in the months before it, the preparation, the hard work, mm. the sacrifice, the training, the analysis. And I also saw how tough and lonely a job it was for coaches because I was seeing my dad do that. So I've always had an affinity with coaches and want to support them as they go through right. that process of doing that. But the second thing is around the culture, just to go back to a reference point about the boxing club, a few years ago, Manchester Council, where we're from, named a, named a road after my dad in honour of the work that he'd done in the community. On the day that we did it, there was about 300 people turned up for this, uh, for this event, like the road naming. Decent. Yeah, and it was like a really bleak, cold January day. And I remember being there with my brothers and my sister. And I remember looking around and say there was about 300 people. I estimated about 80% of them had never set foot in a boxing ring in their life but they'd been members of the of the boxing club. So they'd come along to get fit or they wouldn't have just come in sometimes to escape some of the mm. challenges of life. And all of them spoke about the lessons that had taught them about being a decent person, a parent, a partner, a professional in other aspects. And the reason I mention that is I think that gives you an idea of how powerful culture can be as a, as a competitive advantage, that it can teach you really powerful lessons yeah. about life without necessarily having to then so rugby clubs i know we were talking about your background of growing up in christchurch mm. where you become immersed in these type of cultures and you then learn just important lessons of how to get along with others how to conduct yourself mm. so rugby has got equal resonance as a lot of sports clubs like in my case the boxing club we'll get to rugby in a minute because we've got some yeah. good wee story about uh, a half time changing shit in twickenham sticking on the boxing theme for a second didn't you cross paths with Muhammad Ali at one point? Yeah, I did. So it's about nearly 20 years ago now. I decided that I was going to write a book and I had no idea how to write a book. I didn't know how to write a book, but my naivety was my strength because I made a list of all the people that I wanted to 
go and meet and interview. A bit like what we do on the mm. High Performance Podcast, but I thought, I'd like to go and meet and interview these guys, sort of unpick their story, but more about how they did what they do, and then talk from there, tell it within this book. And I thought, we only have a six degrees of separation from anyone. I'd made a big long list of people like Sir Alex Ferguson, Sir Richard Branson, just like some very just, big just names. Just start long with your yeah, way yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I sort of sat down and thought, we're only six degrees of separation from anybody, so let's work backwards from who do I know that might know them. When I looked at the Muhammad Ali one, I thought, I'm only one person removed from him, Angelo Dundee. So my dad... You know, given his background in boxing and sort of growing up amongst like these really like storied trainers. An- Angelo Dundee, for you know, if you're listening at home, is Muhammad Ali's trainer, like a very yeah, well-known so boxing in, trainer. Yeah, so like Dundee dog. had been in Ali's corner from the yeah. very start of his career right yeah. to the end. He'd worked with like Sugar Ray Leonard, he'd been mm. in his corner for the big fights. And he was just a guy that had this incredible career. But and my dad and him were friends and Angelo lived out in Miami. So it was like, all right, so Angelo... So I wrote him a letter and explained what I wanted to do. And I got a phone call at home. He was like, Damien, it's Angelo. I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, I'll speak to Mohammed for you. That was how it came about. So what I ended up doing was I sent the manuscript to Angelo. He was like, right, yeah, no problem. I'll pass it on to Mohammed. And that was how we ended up connecting. Did you meet Mohammed in person? Yeah, so um, he was very poorly at this stage, but we got an invite. So we had to do it where we went out to uh, Atlanta, me and my dad to go meet him he was he was back home in louisville for a while but he was quite poorly so we went and met him for it ended up being about 30 to 40 minutes because mm. uh, he was tired and and he'd done it as a favor to angelo so we went out there and met him which was a real privilege that is a massive privilege he'd be at the top of my list would it yeah if he if he was still alive yeah he would be like muhammad ali man that's that's yeah, huge. yeah. I, I felt blessed, but I think what was really interesting was that uh, Angelo was a lot older than him, obviously, but he was a lot more cogent and was able to tell us some of the stories. So when I was asking some of the stories about his career, for example, that it's a stat that's always intrigued me. Like I heard it when I was a kid, was that when he used to make his famous predictions for fights. So in his first nineteen fights in his career, he made nineteen predictions. He'd say what round he'd win in, and mm. what even sometimes what punch he'd throw. So the one on that the always intrigued me, yeah. So the one he'd say, he, he, like the one that intrigued me was when he boxed Archie Moore, and he had this poem where he said, "Don't block the aisles, don't lock the door. Archie Moore will fall in four. And everyone thinks, "Well, that's great," but Archie Moore was his first credible opponent. Ali was nineteen. Archie Moore was a former world light heavyweight champion. So you got a nineteen-year-old lad saying, "I'm going to school this this veteran," and he ended up knocking him out in the fourth round. And when I was asking Angelo about this, he, he was like, yeah, yeah. He said, so he'd sit down with his with us as trainers and he'd say, what do you think I can do? And we'd say, right, I think you can knock him out early or this might be a distance fight. So we'd almost give him the strategy and tell him how we were going to play the training camp. And then what he would do is he'd marry it up with the emotion of imagining key moments of what am I going to do at that moment or this moment. So he's explaining the techniques that, that Muhammad Ali used to do. I was like... This was just like a ringside, like literally, forgive the pun, just a ringside seat. It's a genius. Do you know what I mean? That's so cool. Yeah. So cool. So Dundee would give, the training guys would give them, give Muhammad Ali the game plan. This is what we're going to do. And then Muhammad Ali would just visualize that whole game plan and then it would happen. Yeah, well, at key moments was the way it was explained to me. So that so because Dundee and his, and, and his fellow trainers, they'd know what an opponent was like. So they'd say, right, Archie Moore... In his case, you go, he's grizzled, he's slow, 
he's quite ponderous. He's getting old now at the moment. Mm. So your speed and reflexes mean that if we attack him early, we can beat him and we think it could go in six rounds. And then they'd do that. So then they'd bring it and then they'd explain to him in camp, we're going to bring in different fighters that can sort of mirror Archie Moore's techniques. This is how we're going to do it. And we think that we're going to prepare you to knock him out in six rounds. And then Ali would be like, right, okay, fine. And then he'd start visualising key moments, like when I walk out, when I meet him at the press conference, when I'm in this moment, how am I going to handle it? And he'd visualise key moments in the fight. So he used this phrase that he used to call it future history. So he'd say he'd plan what he was going to do and then look at it and then look back at it as if it had already happened. Right, yeah, that's smart. Yeah, but he's doing it. I mean, this is a guy that, like, most people at that time would have said he was an ill-educated a fighter with no real skills, but this was a guy that was almost pioneering sports mm. psychology techniques yeah. in the 60s before anyone was talking about this kind of stuff. Massively. And the thing that people always talk about with Ali is how he got in people's heads. Like, he should never have beaten George Foreman. And yeah, yeah. It, like, yeah. He should never have, never have won that fight. They should never have even gone that far. But he got inside Foreman's head. Well, this is what I think is really interesting, that, like, when I see it now with guys, because people think the trash talking he did was almost the art of it, but I think it was the substance behind the trash talking. So what he was saying, yeah, that's exactly yeah, that's exactly right. Because like I'm I'm thinking I've always thought exactly what you just said. Like I've always thought it's just a trash talking. It's just trash talking. He's come up with that on the spot. It's witty. It's funny. Which of course it was. But you're right. There's so much in behind what he was doing. It's so thought out and planned. Sometimes you don't need to trash talk. I remember back in the mid nineties. I don't know if you remember a young boxer called Prince Nassim Hamad, that he was sort of like a bit of a superstar a came guy. from Sheffield. Yeah, British guy. And he's sort of like, he was very spectacular and flashy and showy. Mm. And he was regarded as like a bit of a loud mouth. His trash talking was on a different level. Didn't he come in on a magic carpet? Was that him? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all that kind of, the showmanship <laughs> stuff. But when he boxed for his first world title, it was in Cardiff. And I was down there because I used to go and sort of carry the spit bucket and help my dad in the corner so you're in the dressing room and you see the, the stuff like that and when we were at the press conference the day before so they're doing the weigh-in this guy princess him he's loud he's obnoxious at times he's he's insulting to his opponent and he turned up and met this cardiff guy called steve robinson who was the world title holder and everyone's waiting for the insults to fly and he didn't and he walks over to him and shook his hand and everyone's like right what's going on here and he says to steve robinson on the sort of uh, podium he says, Steve, I'd just like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to fight for your world title tomorrow night. And this guy's like, oh, right, thanks. And he goes, listen, I've been thinking about it. I'm that confident that I'm going to beat you. He said, I'll give you my purse if you beat me tomorrow night. And he went, will you give me yours if I beat you? And the Steve Robinson paused just for a beat. And that was when Hamed went, don't answer the question. I've already beaten you. I know the answer. And this guy was like, no, no, I can beat you, I can beat you, you can't have a bus. And he was like, you're making a fool of yourself now. But he, it was a low-key trash talking, so yeah. it wasn't about having to be loud. It was just, he put a seed of doubt in his head and let him know that I, you've just, I've just seen your poker tell. Yeah, gotcha. And yeah. So I'm not a big one for sort of that trash talk because I, I, I often think focus on your own game. Yeah. But actually, if you see it as a weapon that you can use, as long as you're intelligent about it, it can be an advantage. What are your thoughts on Tyson Fury? Because the way I see Tyson Fury's trash talking, especially to Deontay Wilder, is you've got Deontay Wilder who yeah. is a very proud, so, so proud that he doesn't shake hands after he loses. Yeah. Like a very proud dude. 
Tyson Fury knows that. So to upset him, he just abuses him, tells, <laughs> tells him he's a big dosser, whatever. And, and that in itself wears down Wilder. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts I think so. On? I mean, I, I've got a bit of a hit. Um, so my dad trained Tyson for a while before he, my dad slept away and retired. So it, Tyson was in the gym quite a lot and uh, I was around him. He's a fascinating bloke. I say, what I would say about him is, is he's far more intelligent than people for a long time gave him credit for. I mm. think he's getting the credit for how intelligent he is. But even as a, as a younger man than now, he was super sharp, super clever. He's been bred to fight. So his mm. dad, John, was a fighter uh, that I remember working in the corner when his dad was fighting. So that makes me feel old when you see his son. But uh, yeah, he was super smart. He's been bred to fight. He understands mm. the psychology of it. So when you see him dishing out his insults and things like that, although it's sort of like meme friendly for social media, there's a strategy behind it. It's not done just like a yeah. um, machine gun. Yeah, there's stuff that's going on behind the scenes where he's like, okay, I'm going to say this, say that, similar to Ali almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. How did you go from boxing to... Because you went got into rugby league, didn't you, as well? Yeah, so... I suppose you, you're northern. Of course you got into rugby league. Rugby league, yeah, yeah. I grew up in the boxing gym and, and I was around it all my life. So I was sort of... like My very first job was an interesting one that uh, most people say my first job was delivering papers or... You know, I was working in my local cafe. Mine was uh, being the ring card. Like, it's, it's not the girls that do it, but mine was the guy that carries the ring card in the boxing event. You would have copped it. I did. So I was 14, <laughs> right? There's footage somewhere on YouTube where... So I used to go along to dressing rooms and I'd be helping sort of tidy up. I'd carry the spit bucket. I'd be sort of just keeping everything in order. One day, this boxing promoter that in the 1970s and 80s, he was huge, a guy called Mickey Duff. He was promoting the show and he comes into the dressing room and his ring card girls had let him down, the ones that get in the ring and tell you it's mm. second, third, fourth round, etc. They'd let him down and he was looking for somebody to uh, do it. He said, I need somebody to do it. So my dad went, he'll do it and put me forward. So <laughs> my dad negotiated my purse. I think it was about £10 for doing it. But you do all the undercard fights and then you do the main, the main event. So I'm sat in the corner with the ring cards and then in between the rounds, like scrambling in the ring with my tracksuit on, walking round. And we're at the GMEX Centre in Manchester. So for anyone that knows it, it's like an old railway building. It's like a big, long building. And it's seated about 8,000. So I'm a 14-year-old boy getting in the ring and oh. 8,000 pissed-up people are sat there waiting for some glamorous-looking woman to get in the ring and... 14-year-old me there's scrambles. A lot, there's a lot of <laughs> testosterone, drunk testosterone, <laughs> looking at you <laughs> yeah. oh. honestly the abuse just came down like waves it was like what the fuck and booing and whistling and and it was relentless for every round i did it on every fight of the undercard and it ended up there used to be a tv program like a sports program on bbc on a wednesday night called sports night it featured the fight on it and you can see me walking around carrying the <laughs> ring card for the main ring and when i got into school the next day one of my teachers went were you at uh, the boxing last night? And I was like, yes, sir. And he was like, uh, what on earth do you think you were doing? But that was my first job and I ended up keeping it for uh, a few of the big You fights. went back? Oh, yeah, yeah. This guy, Mickey Duff, had asked my daddy to say, is, uh, is Damien available to do it? Because he must have been paying hundreds of pounds for these girls and then thought the novelty of seeing a scrote like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the ring for £10 was like, it was a cost saver. The entertainment of hearing the abuse that's getting chucked yeah. at you was a bit better than a ring card girl. Yeah, so that was my first job. But then 
I sort of, uh, so I went down the route, I went into further education, did a long time of that, went back to night school, doing that whilst I was still working in the boxing and being involved in it. So I still had friends that were involved in sport. One of my friends introduced me to Tony Smith, who was the Aussie coach at the time of uh, the Leeds Rhinos mm. rugby league team. So Tony and myself used to meet up. Uh, we got really friendly. And he still is a great mate. So we used to just go meet on a Wednesday night once a month in a pub near him up in Huddersfield. And we just used to sit and have a beer and just used to talk about some of the challenges of coaching and just sort of bounce ideas around. So when Tony left Leeds, he took the England rugby league head coach job on and he asked me if I'd come on board with, on the staff with him. I did that in the 08 World Cup out in Australia. And then Tony uh, then took on the head coach's job at Warrington Wolves and asked me to come in with him there. So I did th the first three years. Tony ended up being six years. I'd worked for the first three years with him there in rugby league. So that was how I got immersed in that. And it's oh. a brilliant sport. I like I Like... What I often say to people is that I don't work in sport. I work with people who just happen to work in sport. Didn't Angelo Dundee teach you there? Yeah, yeah. So Dundee had told me that years ago when I again when I was a kid and I was talking to him about what was that fighter like and when that fight happened, what did that fighter do? And he stopped me and he went, "I don't work with fighters. I work with young men that fight." And it was a real seminal moment for me. Of it's the people that count here, not the not mm. the sport or mm. or the role. I didn't know anything about rugby league and some people will say I still don't, but I was working with some brilliant guys, some really impressive individuals that were out there just doing incredible things and so supporting them was a real privilege. And then from there, I've worked in a few other different sports as well. So I worked for a while with Tracy Neville with the England Roses, the netball. I've worked out in Canberra with the Raiders in rugby league with them, with Ricky Stewart. I've worked with a number of different Premier League football teams. Back in 2017, I did uh, three years working with the Scotland national rugby team. In uh, Yeah, tell me about that game. It, was it 2018, wasn't it, at Twickenham? Or 2019? Uh, 2019. 2019, yeah. Twickenham, England uh, winning, I want to say 35-7 maybe? I think it was, yeah. yeah at half-time, Scotland <laughs> are getting hosed. And you were at, you were in Twickenham with the Scotland team, and you were you were in the changing rooms. Like how are they, in that environment, that many high performers that are low performing, how are they mentally turning that around? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think when we got in that dressing room that day, so there was sort of like a sense of expectation because we'd beaten England the year before up at Murrayfield, uh, which was mm. like the first time in ten years, I think it was, that mm. Scotland had beaten them. We beat them comprehensively that year. I don't know if you remember, so that 2018 yeah, we, game. We actually had a rugby pod live show on the Thursday night, and it was massive. And I took my bagpipes up there. Did you? Yeah, I was playing the bagpipes to John Barclay, who was the captain. Oh, yeah, yeah. Came to the rugby pod live show that night and was <laughs> chopping pints with us on the Thursday night. Was it? Saturday, he's winning the Calcutta Cup for Scotland against England. Yeah, so, so, so John was a really impressive leader, you know, and that... And, and that game was a really good example that almost encapsulated just what he offered. So we'd won at the year four, and then we came down here for the game at Twickenham. We'd come off a couple of disappointing performances uh, on the back of that, and I think there was a lot of injuries, and I think the general narrative was that we were going to get humped. And I think one thing that is part of the Scottish character, without stereotyping too much, is that underdog mentality. Like, backs against mm -hmm. the wall, we'll come out fighting. So... 
it was almost like the narrative was quite helpful that oh here they come the underdogs they're going to get humped and this idea that you could see the resolve amongst some incredible blokes there in the squad that that resolved their own pride was this isn't going to happen on our watch but then that first half England were just incredible they just blitzed like the pace of it was breathtaking so going in at half time there was almost a sense of, sh of like shell shock mm. walking in there thinking what's just happened yeah at moments like that I think that's where you see great coaches come to the fore and uh, I think that was certainly the case with Gregor Townsend that what he did was brilliant because the, the players were sat there and they were hurting. There was a few players, I think, looking to pull the pin and like ask the physios if they'd sort of excuse them as second half duty. And Did players, they? players do that. I didn't even think about that. Well, well, well I mean, not blatantly like yeah, that, but yeah, I think yeah. when you get a knock and then... Oh, it's a bit sore, it's a bit Yeah, sore. you get the knock and then you're getting humped at, at yeah. half time. You're thinking, actually, it, it, it probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if I was removed from this yeah. good hiding that's coming. So you see things like that happen in lots of different dressing rooms. That's not unique there, but there was just a general sense. And Greg had taken himself off with Danny and Matt, his assistants, to sort of calm down, process it. And when he came out, I think he delivered. And I've said this to him, so I'm not betraying confidences by saying this. I think it was the most emotionally intelligent, controlled speech I've ever seen anyone give under under those circumstances because he was hurting he was disappointed so it would have been easy to come in and just sort of start ranting and raving and shouting and screaming about how disappointing it was but he didn't he was really measured and calm and he just said to the guys he just went we haven't followed the game plan that first half you haven't followed the game plan and then what he did was brilliant he said forget the game now forget the result here he said what we need to focus on is that we can leave this stadium with our heads held high and proud of what we do and we've got the chance to do that in the second half, which again tapped into that sense of pride of don't worry about the outcome, let's get caught up in how we're going to perform. So he reminded them of the game plan, so there was a logical element to it. But we'd also spoken about one of the things we speak about on the podcast is non negotiable behaviours. Mm. And with Scotland, we talked about what are our non negotiables, our trademarks, and there was three. One was about being brave, so taking risks, one was about sticking together, and then the third one was about do everything at pace. So you do things at pace. He reminded them of those three behaviours and said, do you think you can do that? And the players went, yeah, no problem. So they went out there not focused on turning that game around because why would you think that at 35-7? Mm. It was about going out there and retaining your pride and focusing on what you could control, which was those behaviours and how you showed up. And then there was just a degree of momentum that happened and the players were intelligent and good enough to keep that momentum rolling. Uh, throughout that second half so it was a real privilege to see it but the privilege for me was to get to watch what Gregor did at half time that's what I say the work in the shadows that nobody talks about was that emotional control to come in and keep a focused clear head mm. when everything around you feels so bleak that's such good insight and looking at emotional intelligence like how important obviously it's important but like how big of a piece of the puzzle is that when it comes to leadership and coaches and people in the in the team, how important is that to culture, I guess, or, or making sure yep. that, you know, in the right times you say the right things and have the right actions? Yeah, I think it's a really smart question you're asking, Andy. I think I think it's huge. I think it's difficult to quantify in terms of, of if you had to put a percentage on it, it's difficult, but emotional intelligence is at the heart of all high-performing mm. cultures. So one of the interviews we've done on the podcast was with uh, Sia Khaleesi, 
Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Springboks captain. Yeah, the, the Springboks captain. So a, a, a friend of mine, Tom, that were that were, had worked down at the Stormers, we sort of hook up quite regular and we sort of bounce ideas around. And Tom's sort of a brilliant consultant down there. So I'll often be picking his brains. And in some of the conversations, he said, oh, you need to speak to Sia. The next thing is, so all I knew about Sia Khaleesi at this stage was that this was a guy whose nickname is The Bear. So physically, he's an imposing bloke. Mm. He's, a, he's a physically dominating character. I said to Tom, why, like, what, like, why do you speak so highly of him? And he said, he's the best hugger I've ever met in my life. And I was like, sorry, just say that again. I think I've misheard you. He's like, he gives the best hugs of anyone I've ever met in my life. And I was like, that's an interesting point to make. Would you explain more? And he went, yeah. He said, he's a guy that's just so open with his emotions that when he sees you, he's not reserved. He's just, come here, mate. He gives you a big bear hug. And he said, it's amazing. He said, but the thing why I'm telling you that is, he said, the hugs he gives to people are consistent. So he said, the cleaners down at the Stormers get hugs off him every day when he sees them. So when the president of South Africa has turned Are you up saying to meet hugs? Him, hugs. Oh, yeah. I thought you were saying hooks. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> that's all right. It's our accent. Yeah, that's my accent. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so, but he said the president of South Africa gets a hug off him the same as what the cleaners do. That's a really quite intriguing point to make about a guy that's such an amazing player. So when I, I, Tom was good enough to give me his number uh, and we sort of hooked up a few times and spoke about some of this stuff. And he was like, yeah, I'll come on the podcast. Now, it took us a while to line it up. And then when he came, he just blew me away, his emotional intelligence. That did you get I, a big hug? Well, I, uh, we did this one on Zoom, so I didn't get a hug off him. But uh, I came off the phone and said to my wife, I said, I've just met a guy playing a different game than everyone else. This is a guy that just understands, he's seen a different picture. And I'm convinced he'll end up becoming a political leader of some kind. He'll be future president of South Africa or something. Is it right? Well, he talked, like... When we talk about emotional intelligence, he so he told the story to us about that. He said when he took over as the Springboks captain when Razi Erasmus came in, uh, he came in with this idea of Ubuntu, which is a Zulu phrase that he explained to us means I am because you are. So I can only be the person I am if you're being the person you are is the essence of it. So this is a great way of describing mm. emotional intelligence. And then he describes how like his own background of growing up in the townships, real poverty, getting a scholarship to a good public school there and how his best friend was a white guy. So Sia's son is named after his best friend. So he was saying, I don't see colour. I really don't. I see people for who they are. So Ubuntu fitted his style of leadership. And then he tells that great story that one of the first exercises he decided to do, him and Erasmus, was that they had a group exercise where they asked all the players to bring in photographs of people that they represented. So Ubuntu is, who do you play for when you pull the Springboks jersey on? And they all came in with like parents, partners, children, first coaches. Mm. And then Makazola Mapimpi turned up with five pictures of himself. So everyone then thinks, oh, this guy's uh, hot doggy and he's sort of making a fool of the process. He's trying to sort of subvert it. And they go, let him speak. And then Mapimpi starts speaking and goes, I'm an orphan. He'd lost his parents by the age of 10. His brother and sister that had survived it ended up, both of them, passed away by the age of 15. So man Pimp is saying, I don't have any family. I don't play for anyone other than you guys. You're my family. When I pull on that jersey, you're all I've got. And Khaleesi said, the game changed from that moment on. That you sat there and suddenly, he used this great phrase to us, he says, I'd fight for a teammate, but I would die for a member of my family. And man Pimp is sat there and gone, well, I'm a member of your family because... 
I've, I've opened myself, I've made myself vulnerable here. And Khaleesi was saying that he believed that was the moment when the game changed for South African rugby, that suddenly it's the emotional intelligence that deepens those bonds, that when you see them play, look at how fearsome and ferocious they are in the way yeah. that they go about doing it. There's something, there's like a deeper cohesion and connection that they have that you can describe it as emotional intelligence, but you can see the importance of it, I suppose, is what I'm saying. The emotional intelligence was the kickstarter for that to happen. Yes, well, so, very much, because yeah. he was talking about the narrative of, of like South African rugby was almost divisive in so many ways when you think back through how it had been a symbol of apartheid prior to uh, 1995, and but then how they'd gone through TV troubles of trying to integrate South African rugby to represent the whole community. Mm. And yet, so it took until Khaleesi was appointed in 2018 as the first black captain of a guy that was symbolic in many ways to then say, but I think we can look at the symbolism, but I think what's really fascinating is the emotional intelligence of Khaleesi and Razi Erasmus to be able to then create emotional intelligence in that wider group and build those stronger bonds. So I loved him. I thought he was just incredible. Like he told us a really nice story that the night before the 2019 World Cup final, he said his wife Rachel had phoned him up at his hotel room and said, what are you thinking about? And he said, I'm thinking about the England game tomorrow. And she said to him, well, you've got to win that game. You've already done all the preparation. Don't think about that. You need to start thinking about what you're going to do with your status as the captain of the World Rugby Champions. So he said the night before the World Cup final in Yokohama, Khaleesi starts making a list of things like, I'm going to speak out about gender-based violence in South Africa. I'm going to build a school in the township I'm from. I'm going to open up food banks for the starving. And he's making a list of all things that he described as almost humanitarian in their intent. And he said, I had such confidence we were going to win, but that power of purpose took us over the line. And then immediately after I came off, I started putting into action my plan. So you look at some of his activity that he does, speaking out about gender-based violence, that mm. for a dominant public figure like him to speak out about that. When he was talking to us on the podcast, he, we asked him about the hugs and he was like, oh yeah, I believe that people see me cry, people see me express emotions because I'm trying to change the narrative of what constitutes what a man should be. So this is a guy that's just, as I said to you in the start of the answer, he's playing a different game than most other people. He is playing a much different game. (laughs) Jesus. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Xander letter is quite an interesting thing that ties into that quite nicely because there's a study, isn't there, where you can, about a professor that gave everyone in this class yeah. A's and said, don't worry about it, you've all got A's. At the end of the semester, we were going to get A's. Just write a letter to yourself to now explaining what you did to get that A in six months' time. Is that something that you work with a lot in sport? Is that something that that principle, is that used quite a bit in sport in other ways or tweaked? 
Yeah, it's a, again, it's a really good question. I think it's used, it, it probably isn't referred to as a Zander letter, but you're absolutely right, Andy, the context of it. So there's a guy called Benjamin Zander, who's the head conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, but he also teaches appreciation in music. And one of his frustrations was how many of his students would turn up and they weren't appreciating music. They were more focused on what their grade was going to be. So it was almost like they were focused on a number rather than actually you're supposed to love music here. This is the purpose of it. So when he was talking to his wife, I think she called Ros Zander, she sort of saw his frustration and she said, well, why don't you just remove the pressure of the score? So tell them you'll give them an A. But what they have to do for it is write this letter, which is known as a Zander letter. So the idea is you write it 12 months from the date you're writing it from. So you'd write it for the year after, but you write it in real time as if the year has already happened. Right. So what he asked them to do is focus on all the things that you learned Focus on the things that you enjoyed. Think about your successes, your achievements. And the idea behind it is that what it does is it opens your brain up to possibilities rather than probabilities. It opens you up to the sense of opportunity rather than threat. So you start looking for things that you've already identified and you've written it as if it's happened. So the science behind it is there's an area of your brain known as the reticular activating system. So it's sometimes referred to as the RAS. Mm. And what the RAS does is it, it regulates a number of different things, including your breathing and sleeping patterns. But it also opens your brain up to, to possibilities. So it opens your conscious mind up to information that it perceives as relevant for you. And if you've identified that I'm going to achieve this, you put it into your unconscious mind that this is a relevant bit of information. So the reticular activating system sees those relevant information when it happens. So the easiest way that we're speaking before is that Say like you decide I'm going to buy a certain brand of car and there's a certain colour you love. And when you've decided that that's the car you want, you'll notice how you'll see lots of the similar cars of the same colours driving on the road. Yeah. That's how the reticular activating system works. I did this the other day. I brought some gym shoes yep. and I went to the gym and I noticed probably 90% of the people there or the shoes that I saw, everyone had the same shoes as me. Yeah. But previously, I hadn't even, I didn't even notice. Well, there you go. So that's how it works. So the idea is you start looking for possibilities. So some athletes might do this for a core skill like visualization of a core skill like a dive or a catch under pressure or a certain, you'll, in rugby, the kickers, you'll see them sort of their eye tracking movements and all of that. Mm. So that's a similar thing for a core skill. But you can do this over a longer term period. So on the podcast and in the book that we did that uh, on high performance, Tom Daly told us about how he used it for an Olympic cycle. So every year of a four-year cycle, he'd write a Zander letter and then reflect back on what that year had taught him. So that can work really well in isolation. Where I advocate when I work with coaches and say, it works even better if you marry it up with a second technique from another psychologist called Gary Klein. And this technique is known as a pre-mortem so what you do is once you've written the Zander letter and you say that's where I'm heading for the next 12 months a pre-mortem says before we start on that journey what could kill us so what are the things that could go wrong that could stop us achieving those ambitions that we've just identified so you might come up with say five things that what happens if that goes wrong or if that disaster occurs and then you work out how would I handle it should that disaster happen so what you're doing is you're calming your brain down and saying, if it occurs, don't worry, because I've already got a plan in place. Now, there's been really fascinating research on this, led by a guy called Adam Grant, that some of your listeners might know, where what they've said is that when you can combine these two techniques of 
visualization in the Zander letter and catastrophization, the pre-mortems, you can improve people's resilience by around 32%. Because you know where you're going, but you also feel immunized against disaster should it occur, that you know you can get through it and cope. Now, when we've asked some of our high performers for the book on this and said, does this work for you? And we give them that peer assessed 32%. Anecdotally, they go, ah, it's a lot higher than that. It's far higher that those techniques make a huge difference. So one of the interviewees that we asked this question of was Dame Kelly Holmes. And we'd spoke to her around when she won two Olympic gold medals at the 2004 Olympics. My question was, how much of those two gold medals was physical gifts, your just ability to run fast? And how much of it was your mental toughness of being able to run fast under pressure? Because those two techniques mm. can be quite different. And her answer was telling, she went, 20% of it was physical, 80% of it was mental. And when she expanded on it, she said, yeah, she said, in that final, the top five finishers, their best times were 0.2 of a second apart from each other. So she said, you could have thrown a beach towel and all five of us would have fitted under it. So at that stage, we were all just as fast and as fit and as tough as each other. So these techniques of visualization and catastrophization and being able to do that under pressure was the bit that made the difference. And she's attributing it to 80%. Now, when I've been lucky enough to work, say with rugby teams, and you ask them the question, like one of the questions I'll sometimes ask them is, how much of your success is down to physically being fit, being able to throw, catch, what sort of times you're doing on the running exercises, and how much of it is down to the soft skills? And when I talk about soft skills, the ones that are more difficult to quantify, mm. cohesion, confidence, communication, teamwork, team spirit, all these sort of nebulous phrases. I've yet to go into a successful team that doesn't advocate it's something around 30, 70. So not far off Kelly Holmes's mm. estimate. Mm. Now, the interesting question I sometimes then ask the coaches is, can we have a look at your training schedule for the next month? Where is the vast majority of your time spent? And the answer is on the stuff you can easily quantify get them in the gym, get them out on the field, get this. But then what I sometimes say is, well, look at what they're telling you. They're telling you the big gains in performance is going to come through the softer skills, the just the Sia Khaleesi stuff, the yeah. getting to know each other, building these strong bonds and relationships, but we're not investing time or energy in doing that. So you're looking to make small incremental leaps rather than what we're being told is big quantum leaps. But when we interviewed Dan Carter on the podcast. Again, this is the, where the conversation was going. And Carter said to us, he said, when we started taking these softer skills seriously with the All Blacks, he described it as a quantum leap. He said, we went from being a very good team to being world-class consistently. And it, but it only came about when we started taking the idea of coping under pressure, emotional intelligence, team cohesion, purpose, belonging, yeah. behaviours. When all this stuff started to be embraced by by Richie McCaw, by Carter, by the like the big leaders in that dressing room, mm. and it rippled in, they said that's where we went to. We were playing a different game than everybody else. For years, they obviously they had trouble winning at World Cups, and they were always the best team yeah. leading up to the World Cup, and then they then they just blow it. And they, I think it was a guy called Gilbert Anoka. That's right. They yeah. got in, and yeah, they went from being able to win consistently in the games that didn't really matter to being able to because all, all the games that like you know, you know they had this such such great success 
through Carter and McCaw's era. I think they won close to 90%, yeah. 89%, something like that. And it wasn't like they were thumping teams. It wasn't like they would play against England at Twickenham and put 40 points on them or anything. It wasn't even close to that. It was The games were always quite tight, yeah. but they were consistently getting over the line. And that's when the, the mental side of it comes in. 100%. So like when we spoke to Dan, so he was telling us about, you write about Gilbert and Oka. Kerry Evans was a psychiatrist he brought in. Owen Eastwood was a really impressive guy that, that, so that worked with them. But they were being brought in, and these were not anything to do with rugby. These were like experts on throw and catch or tackling mm. technique because there was already brilliant coaches in there teaching that. That had never been the problem. As you say, they were doing this when they weren't under pressure. But the bit of coping and keeping that cohesion and confidence was what the real quantum leap was. So Dan Carter was telling us around some of the techniques that they had. So he was saying that they all had like a poker tell. People listening to this will probably go, oh, I've heard of this. But they all had their own individual tells. So they would spot when they were becoming overcome by events. So we said to Dan, what was yours? And he said, I used to slap my thigh. And just slapping my fire, that physical act, jolting me back into not thinking about what had just gone in the past or fearing what was coming in the future, but it rooted me in the now of focus on your next move. Mm. So he said, so when I couldn't slap my thigh, he said, when I had to do a kick, he said his, his other poker tell was he'd plant his foot into the turf so his toes were hitting the end of his boot and he'd sort of dig his foot into the turf. And that moment of feeling his toes at the end of the boot with the moments go... You're back in the moment. Focus on what's in front of you rather than what's just gone. Kieran Reid had one where he would dig both feet into the ground and just look into the distance, into the crowd. Yep. And then that would refocus them and yeah. he'd be right back in the now. So that's his. So they all worked on their own individual tells. What is it that gets you in the moment? So let's not. And then they worked on breathing techniques. When they came together in the huddle, they would synchronize their breathing. And the idea of you getting more oxygen to your brain so we can make more logical decisions rather than react on pure emotion. So these are all stuff that might sound a little bit outlandish or they're easy to dismiss. Mm. People go, oh, so we doing high fives with each other or is it about group hugs in the dressing room? And what these guys are saying is, no, it wasn't. It might have been, but it wasn't to do it for a gimmick. It was to do it because it had a really clear sense of purpose yeah. that lay at the heart of it. The All Blacks did a thing on red brain, blue brain as well. That's that's right. That, that's for coping under pressure. Again, it's one of these environments where you can see that they're taking this stuff seriously because it's part of their narrative. It's almost part of their shorthand. So they employed a guy called Kerry Evans, who's an incredible psychiatrist, a Kiwi that's works over. He's a Rhodes Scholar, and he basically simplifies thinking processes down. So the brain's a hugely complex organ. There's almost seven parts of the brain that knit and melt together when it's in the womb. So it can be quite complex for anybody to explore it. Now, in the last 15 years or so, there's been an awful lot of different models out there or metaphors that try to simplify and explain the brain. But all of them use a model that's been around since the late 50s from a guy called Dr. Paul McLean. So this guy was a psychiatrist that talks about the triune brain model. It translates as three brains into one. So all metaphors that you tend to see in popular culture use the three brains in one model, but they give you different examples. So Steve Peters does the chimp brain that's in popular mm. culture. There's an American psychologist talks about the Sherlock Holmes brain. It's sometimes referred to as the lizard brain, sometimes referred to as the elephant brain. So there's loads of different metaphors out there. 
But I think the one that I've seen has been adopted and integrated into a culture best was Kerry Evans's red brain and blue brain. So it's the same metaphor, but just using that simple language. So the idea behind the red brain is that it's the limbic system effectively is the way that it describes this complex part of it. And it does three things for you. So this part of the brain we share with every other animal on the planet and the three drivers are, first of all, it gives you a sex drive, a desire to procreate. The second one it gives you is a desire to survive. And then the third one is you hunt with people like you, we pack animals. So if you break that down into rugby terms, you go, well, what does that mean for us? Well, it's the survival bit that's most important here because when you're faced with a set of circumstances like being 12-0 down under the post with a minute left, right? The red part of the brain catastrophizes and goes, we're in trouble here. The consequences of this defeat are huge. The expectation feels really heavy that we should have won this game. So your brain can immediately start to catastrophize. And when it does that and senses it's becoming overcome, gives you three really simple choices that we know as freeze, flight, or fight. So when we stop and pause for a moment and go, well, what does that mean? Look at some of the ways it manifests itself in behaviors. So if you're in flight mode, this is where you get what I often call loser's limp, where you get players suddenly limping off the field, looking to get away from the action. Now, I'm not saying it's always that case, but sometimes it can be you're looking to get, get away from it. Or you see the injury list gets high, your absence rate, your attrition rate, players are looking to leave clubs quickly from a toxic environment. These are all examples of flight responses that are being triggered. The freeze response is the one that, if you ever see a player make a mistake, have a look at how they respond to that mistake when they sort of pull the shirt up over the head or their head retracts into the shoulders. That's an evolutionary response mm. of you're covering, you're going into freeze mode. So I speak to coaches sometimes that take over teams and they'll go, they're just so quiet. We do Q&A sessions and team review, we don't get anything. Or we've got suggestions, we ask them for suggestions and we don't get anything back. And I always say to a coach, the silence should be deafening you. It's feedback. The feedback is either they don't trust you or they don't feel safe in the environment. So why would you put your head above the parapet? You just keep your head down, that's a freeze mode. Or on a game, you see games just passing players by and they're almost observers rather than participants in it. That's often something being triggered by the red system that puts you in freeze mode. The fight mode is you become aggressive, belligerent, over-aroused. So you're looking for a fight, you're looking late shots on, you're making stupid decisions, you're giving dissent, you're pointing the finger at others. All of that is the red brain looking to go into fight mode and blame other people. So what we know is that can you perform at your best when that part of the brain kicks in? Sometimes, but a broken clock's right twice a day. If your best happens, it's an accident, it's not a design. So the third element is we're pack animals by nature. So what that means is we hunt with people like us. Now, that's not a problem until it is a problem. And what you often find where the problem occurs in dressing rooms is cliques. You get divisions. You get people then, oh, the older guys, the younger guys, the millennials. The, uh, often it might be like guys that may become from a certain country or yeah, the Kiwis. And you get that kind of clique that start developing. That's the pack instinct kicking in. Now, you say, well, why is that a problem? Well, you say, well, if you want to know how it's a problem, take a really simple example. So when you hear somebody making comments of oh, the Kiwi guys or the island guys over there, if you want to know whether that is helping to enhance a culture or erode it, try a really simple test. Change the people that they're referring to for race or gender and see if it would be socially acceptable to talk about people in those same disparaging terms on that. And the answer is, well, of course it's not. It's abhorrent. So what's happening? Well, what the red system is doing is you're dehumanising another group of people. They're different than me. They're not the same as me. They don't have the same problems as I do. And once you've dehumanised them, what that allows you to do 
is whenever they speak, you delete, distort, or dismiss their messages. Didn't mean that. I didn't hear them say that, what they really meant. So then you get gossip and innuendo and misunderstandings occurring. So this is all how the red system, if it goes unchecked, can end up causing significant problems. So what Kerry teaches is the blue system, the human part of the brain, is essentially the prefrontal cortex areas of our brain do two things. One, it gives us a desire for logic, for common sense. So if you think about during this pandemic, the really good example of it, that we're living in a time of ambiguity and uncertainty and relative chaos. So what's the common narrative? Conspiracy theorists, 5G phone masks, new mm. world order, Bill Gates at the heart of it. <laughs> and we can laugh about it, but you go, well, why is that the case? And the answer is that as humans, we seek a desire for order when there is disorder. So we have to have a narrative that dominates. And if we don't have it, we make it up. So that's why from a coach's point of view, you need to have a really clear sense of a vision. This is how we're going to play. These are the standards. This is the rules of the game because you need to be the dominant narrative because if it's not, people will make up their own instead. So that's that logical agenda. But the second one is we have what we call a society agenda. And this is what team spirit is. The blue brain says, a society agenda says, when you come into my company, how do you walk out feeling better? So how do we enhance each other? It sees the world as a win-win. How do you win and I win and we all walk away better for it? And if you think about it, in our journey of, of, of in human evolution, how did humans dominate Earth? How did we get out of the jungle and being just another species to being the dominant species on the planet? The development of civilizations, learning to work with each other rather than fight each other, which is what essentially great teams mm. operate on. It's a long-winded answer, but the idea is educating players in which is what new zealand did of getting them to understand this most people that makes sense to me right so now we understand it now let's look at how this manifests itself in behaviors and how we can dial down the unhelpful behaviors and dial up more of the helpful stuff there's a method called the the deck attack yeah that's used for controlling the red brain using the blue brain right yeah so there's two really simple techniques that anyone listening to this if they go oh, i recognize this or how do I use this, say, with my kids' team or things like this without necessarily having the depth of information behind it? The first one is just ask yourself, do I want to feel like this? These feelings that I have at the moment where I feel stressed or angry or agitated, do I want to feel like that? And if your answer to that is no, what you're doing is you're allowing the blue brain to kick back in because they're your red brain creating those emotions and just simply recognising them as emotions, labelling them, saying, I don't want to feel like this gives you a fighting chance of letting your blue brain kick back in. The DAC attack that you mentioned, Andy, is it's the work of an esteemed psychologist that's passed away now, a guy called Dr. Richard Lazarus, who is an expert on stress management. And he said that most stress comes from this DAC attack. So it's either the demands that are on us, like the weight of expectation. I should be winning this game. I need to win it. When you hear things like that, mm. you're putting a lot of demands on the red brain that if it goes wrong, it will catastrophize. The abilities bit is where you don't feel you're capable. Oh, I can't win this game today. I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fit enough. So you start diminishing what your own attributes are. And then the third one is the consequences. Oh, I'm going to get hammered. The press are going to have a field day with me. If I get this wrong, I'm going to get, I might lose my job. I might. So you immediately start going into catastrophizing mode. So what happens is when the demands feel too heavy, your abilities don't feel enough or the consequences feel too steep, the red brain, 
which remember its job is to keep you alive and survival kicks in and goes, I need to take care of this. And we'll just shut down, sends out enough neurotransmitters into the rest of your brain system and means you become panicked and irrational and erratic. Whereas if you can sort of anticipate this and go, right, how do I reduce the demands? So how do I make the demands not feel so heavy? It'd be nice to win. It'd be great if I could win. But it's not going to impact the person I am. That, that kind of thing of you diminish the demands. You talk your abilities up. You, so you remind yourself of what your super strengths are, what you're good at, what you can do. And then you minimise the consequences. You know what? Everyone has a bad day. Mm. But I'll get better tomorrow. Like the amount of people that talk about just using the word yet. So when we interviewed Matthew McConaughey on the podcast, he said, yet is a superpower. I'm not a good player yet. I'm not good at maths yet. Mm. I'm not as fit as I want to be yet. And the idea is that it's not permanent. I can get better. It leaves your brain open to the possibilities that the mm. consequences can change. So a really neat technique is, first of all, asking yourself, do I want to feel this way? If the answer is no, then start to think about the dark. What is it? Is it the demands are too heavy? I don't feel that my abilities are high enough or I'm worried about the consequences of failure. And if you can then start to work on well, it's this, you can then start to take more focus on how do I how do I address that? There's so many interesting people that you guys have interviewed and that you've referenced in your book yep. to you know, weave around the science and, and giving examples of all these really high-performing people, like people that are performing at the top of the game, yep. world level. Someone listening to this that, I'd say most people listening to this, and I don't want to put down my listeners, probably aren't Olympic champions, world champions. Sure. I'd say the majority. So as far as people trying to reach a high performance in their area, whether it's work or whether whether it's anything, whether they just want to do a, a 5K run or, or whatever it is, they need to be able to de develop, like work, find their own strengths, right? Yeah. Because everyone's, I mean, strengths are relative. You know, someone might be a, an intelligent person in one aspect but not might not be in another how do people kind of work out what their area is where they could possibly be a high performer in whatever their area is oh i love that question because it reminds me of when we sat down with a number of our uh, of our interviewees one of them that stands out for this is a lady called uh, joe malone uh, the perfume lady yeah the perfumier my old man he every christmas because he's got three boys and a, and a daughter. Every Christmas, all the daughter-in-laws all get Joe Malone perfumes. This is, <laughs> this is go to. You just go. Yeah, they like Joe Malone. They're all getting a candle. Or they're all getting perfume. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. And that is why Joe Malone is a multi-millionaire. Hundred percent. On the on the back of your dad. And... Such a go to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Such a good go to. But there's a brilliant question that I heard asked many years ago. That I asked Joe Malone and I've asked a few people on the podcast and we talk about it in the book. It comes from one of my academic heroes is a guy called Dr. Howard Gardner. Dr. Howard Gardner is sort of an educational psychologist and he sort of asks a brilliant question. He says, rather than ask children, how clever are you? In other words, how did you do on your exams? What results have you got? The question everybody should be able to answer is not how clever are you, but how are you clever? Because Dr. Gardner's the pioneer of what's known as multiple intelligences theory. And his argument is that everybody's clever, but we're all clever in different ways. So when he first launched this sort of theory in the, in the 1980s, he talks about, we all have access to eight intelligences. So some people that we know are physically gifted, some are verbally gifted, some might be musically gifted, some might have brilliant social gifts. So we're all gifted in some ways, 
But how many kids leave school thinking they're thick? And the reason is, is because their gifts, their intelligence wasn't recognised at a mm. young age. They weren't scoring well in maths, so they assumed they were stupid when the reality was we just haven't found where your talent lies. And Joe Malone was a really good example of it because she says she came from a broken home down in quite a tough area in Kent. She was dyslexic that was never picked up in education. So she said I was regarded as stupid, but the reality was I was working as a perfumier from about 14 for a lady called Madame Labatti. And she said, I, and I had this brilliant ability to like smell things and join different mixtures together to create these incredible smells. But nobody knew that that was what, where my superpower it's was. so niche to find there. Yeah, of course it is. But it's almost that idea that goes back to your question, Andy, of we need to search for, well, what do we do that we're better at than anyone else? What's our superpower? What do we love doing that we do even if we weren't getting paid for it? And then how do we utilise that in our lives to do this? So again, it's a question that when I work with coaches, say in rugby, that one of the great things of far-sighted coaches is it's almost like you coach to somebody's strengths, you coach to their superpower. So again, a really good example of it was when we interviewed Andrew Trimble on uh, the podcast and Trimble spoke about Joe Schmidt was like, I don't want you tackling because you can't, you're not a great tackler. So the time I could invest in you becoming better at tackling is time that's going to be wasted on you being out there and you running at opponents and sidestepping and creating magic in your position. So he, he gave that great example where Joe Schmidt was somebody that was coaching to somebody's strengths. I recognise what you're unique at, where your intelligence lies. And I'm not going to try and make you something you're not. Instead, I'm going to make you, I'm going to coach you so your weaknesses aren't a problem. Mm. But we're actually just going to put you in the team and encourage you to do what you're great at and play to your strengths. And I think how many of us in our lives could do with people that come along, especially if, when we work with young people, that somebody that just comes on and says, that's what you're brilliant at. Yeah. Go and do more of that brilliance. Yeah, because even sometimes you might go into an industry where you might see someone that's really, really good at something and you're not ever going to be as good as in that, in that particular job, but you might have other skills that complement that job as well. I guess it's about structuring, like high performers tend to structure their whole lives around their strengths, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much. And that's where like that cognitive diversity comes from. So again, if we use another example from the rugby world that we've been lucky enough that we've seen this same situation from both the head coach and the player's perspective when we interviewed Dylan Hartley and then we interviewed Eddie Jones later on. Dylan spoke to us that he understood that his super strength, and this was then further... Uh, reinforced by what Eddie had told us was Dylan's super strength as well as being a good player and all that was he was the glue guy the way Eddie Jones referred to him he said when I came into the England setup in 2015 I think it was he said I found a fractured team I found a team that was bruised after the World Cup failure there was people that had left there was people that were nursing some serious hangovers over what had happened and he said I needed somebody that would come in and could bind us together and he tells a story, he said, I saw Dylan Hartley at Penny Hill Park and Eddie Jones had arranged a meeting for breakfast. He said, and everyone told me this guy was a nasty bastard. Mm. He said, and he didn't know I was watching him because Eddie speaks about one of his great skills is he learnt this off a, off a hotel manager, his friends with him, just watch the room. Just always watch behaviour. People will reveal themselves if you watch for long enough. And Eddie said that he was watching Dylan 
and Dylan didn't realise. And he said, the way he spoke to this old lady that was working as a waitress, and he was interested and he was engaged with her and he was polite and he was respectful, told me that this guy wasn't the caricature I thought he was of being this ogre. I saw the way that he was able just to connect with another human being. And he said part of it for him is that he'd come over from New Zealand at 15 before the days of mobile phone technology or mm. the internet was so prolific. So this was a guy that had had to learn to stand on his own two feet and connect with people in Northampton. So Eddie was far-sighted enough to go, this is his super strength. This is a guy that can bring a disparate group of people together and create a cohesive culture, which is why he then made him the figurehead and used to work with him and mentor him on how he could bring the group and bring all these disparate, diverse personalities mm. under a collective banner. To me, that is what you say, that the best teams are diverse thinkers that have got people with all different strengths. But people that are not trying to hide their strength for fear of being ridiculed or made to look stupid, they're welcomed because you know that you can enhance the team by bringing them. Is it done on Kruger? The done on Kruger <laughs> theory? Like some people think they're better... I mean, we've all come across these people that, yeah, yeah. that think their strengths are strengths, but they're actually not. Yeah. So the first rule of the Dunning-Kruger Club is that you don't realise you're in the Dunning-Kruger Club. Right? <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, the yeah. idea is that if you're good at something, you're able to explain to others why you're good at it. And that's not arrogance. That's just because you understand your craft. But if you don't understand why you're good at something... You're deluded as to how good you are at it. So it's almost like, if you're stupid, you're too stupid to know that you're stupid, is the idea. We see it in all aspects of life. How often do you ever go to a sports match and sit next to a guy in the stand who's saying, I could do a better job than the young athletes out there? And you look at them and they haven't worked up a sweat in 20 years, but yeah. they're genuinely looking at it thinking that they would do a better job. And that's the Dunning-Kruger law at play, that you don't understand how far away from good you are to understand what you're watching. Yeah, yeah. So we need to almost overcome that. We all have it as an innate bias. So I talk about when we develop this. This is one of these buzzwords I hear now in the modern world when people say, uh, humility is key, or we've got humility at our core. And I th always think, humility isn't telling somebody you're humble. If you need to tell someone you're humble, you probably lack humility. So like the one that is a bugbear is like, and it comes from New Zealand of sweeping the sheds. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. go on. How many teams then now sweep the sheds and put it on social media to show? <laughs> you know, surely that's oxymoronic. <laughs> Just do it and don't tell anyone. That's what you're trying to get across. Yeah. Don't then tell everyone how down to earth you are. Or someone going on social media and showing them giving a homeless person yeah. 10 quid. Yeah. I did things like that. Yeah, look how good I am. Look, yeah. is that my best side? Yeah, it's, get in the sea. Yeah. So, stuff like, so humility isn't telling people you're humble or standing in front of a big posh house and saying, oh, I'm just like you. Humility is a mindset. And the way I explain this in relation to culture is there's three stages you develop it. The first stage, you have to get past the Dunning-Kruger law. So I call it peak idiot stage. You don't know how far away from good you are, so you're stuck at peak idiot stage, you're deluded. So the example to illustrate this for anyone listening is, I very rarely watch talent shows on TV, but if I'm in a room and it's on, and it's the early stages of the talent show. I love I'll stop the early and watch stages. It. Yeah, yeah, because when somebody turns up and says, I'm going to sing like Mariah Carey, you think, oh, that'll be interesting. Then they open their mouth and they sound like a cat being strangled. That's funny. But what's funny is they're stuck at peak idiot stage and they don't realise they're there. So they've never had a sense of how good Mariah Carey is to then have a self-awareness to go, I'm miles away from that. So you talk about that. So everyone has to go through that stage 
And the quicker you get through it, the quicker you get to stage two, which is the valley of humility. And the valley of humility is just where you're curious. You read mm. a lot, you ask questions, you listen to your podcast, you try things, it doesn't go up, so you then reflect on it and then you give it another go. So we interviewed this brilliant bloke, we mentioned him in the book, he's a, a guy called Nims Perger. So he grew up in sort of a poor part of Nepal, became a member of the Gurkhas, then mm. he became a special forces soldier. He has the single best Instagram on the planet. Yeah, he's incredible, Nims isn't he? Like he has, he's a Red Bull uh, and better right. as well. He's he's climbing. He, what did he do? Like eight of the biggest well, peaks. No, and... no. So like the fourteen highest mountain peaks in the world. Right. The previous record of climbing them was seven years. Nims did it in six months. Yeah. Right. This is incredible, right? But he had this brilliant line that I've I've repeated this so often that, but I don't get tired of it yet. That he says, "Your ability to be world class at something depends on how long you're willing to be shit at it for." <laughs> when he said it I was like you just nailed humility in a nutshell there because that's exactly what the valley of humility is it's about trying failing reflecting trying again it's not telling people you're great it's about being open-minded and curious yeah. and the longer you can spend there like nim says eventually you pick up skills knowledge expertise that gets you to stage three and stage three i refer to this as the hill of knowledge and it's a hill of knowledge where you've got a position, you, you understand your craft. But the reason I refer to it as a hill is because it's easy to come back down the hill into the valley to pick up more information and then take it back up the hill to apply it to your craft. Right. So what you find with all our high performers, or the vast majority of them is, they've got through peak idiot stage as quick as possible. They don't claim expertise. So again, I'll use Dylan Hartley as a really good example of this, that when we first met him, He'd just become a father. He'd just retired from playing. He'd been forced to retire. And he'd become a father. I think it was for the first time. And he was telling us really quite powerfully about his story of coming from New Zealand and how his parents had allowed him to fly the nest at 15 and come 12,000 miles to England. And he was talking very much about the lessons he'd learned. And I said to him, what lessons have you learned from your own career that you would pass on to your children? And his answer was telling, he went, I don't know, mate. He said, I've never been a dad before. And it was a throwaway remark and he wasn't trying to get out of the answer, but it showed me that that was a guy that's got a mindset of humility that he didn't claim expertise as being a rugby player hmm. would immediately transfer to expertise as a father. That he, he went yeah. into that valley of humility of, I've never been a dad before, I don't know. So I don't know how much of what my rugby life can inform me as a father. So it was just a really neat example of how those three stages work. Because I remember when I was working with Scotland once, I remember doing. I, I remember talking at an event, and we'd just been beaten by Wales in the first game of the six of the twenty nine Six Nations. And the week after it, this guy said to me, "I knew Scotland were going to get beat before the game even kicked off." And I said, "Okay, why was that? What like what was it that you knew?" And he went, "Oh, I, I just knew." And I said, "That's really." Interesting, but what I'm interested in is what did you see that maybe could inform us that we didn't see or that we might have missed that if you were so certain that we were going to get beat, what was it that mm. gave you that sense of certainty that maybe we could address? I just knew it. And I said, no, I know, but move beyond that and give us the evidence. And in the end, he went, uh, some of the players didn't have the socks pulled up properly. It's like, right, okay, thanks. But it was almost like... It was easy to state with certainty after the event, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, but then yeah. when you, I tried to take him out of peak idiot stage, I'm not calling the man an idiot, but on this, 
it was at the stage of, I knew that would happen. I was an expert on it. And I was trying to go into the Valley of Humility and say, what did you see that we've missed? And then when it was, he was forced to go, oh, some of the players didn't have the socks pulled up fully. It's like, right, okay, I'm not sure that's valuable. I'm not dismissing who you yeah. are as a person, but what you offered there isn't something that would carry much weight back in that dressing room. If I went to, say, Greco and the coaches and said, we need the lads with the socks pulled up properly. Yeah, they need some garters on there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, some, so, or earn some rubber bands yeah, something, come on. But this yeah. guy who was having the conversation with was a hugely successful entrepreneur and businessman. But what he was falling into the trap of is he assumed that the success he'd had in his life then afforded him a position of making informed statements about a world that he wasn't involved in. And that's the multiple intelligence thing as well. You're very good in that area, but you're not necessarily going to be good in the other area. Yeah, so ask questions, learn. Uh, ask questions of people in that world, not of me, but like go and inform yourself about why you thought that rather than make just these declarations that this is the way mm -hmm. it is because I'm successful in that world, so therefore it transfers. And yet very rarely do you meet these high performers, as Jake and I have done on the podcast, that, that get stuck at stage one very often. They move through it into that valley of humility. We joke about the pulling up the socks bit, but there's some high performers that, you know, uh, Toto Wolf, the head of yeah. Mercedes, he's big on the little things like that to be able to run an organisation at the top level. Like when he came in, what Mercedes had been like fourth a few years That's in a row. Right. Yeah, he's yeah. turned them around and what they've now won, what, seven? Seven consecutive championships. F1. And constructor championships as well, so. Unbelievably dominant. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, Toto was incredible when we met him. And again, I think it's the transferability of it because you can go, okay, but what's Formula One got to do with my world? And then when he said, well, when I came into Formula One, he was from a diverse background. He was a venture capitalist. Yeah. So he's not steeped in the world of Formula One. He's not grown up in it thinking that that's all he knows. So he's walked into Formula One. And let's also remind ourselves, he had skin in the game that he's become an investor in it as well. So he's put his money where his mouth is and invested in Mercedes. And he described to us, he said, it wasn't a Formula One team when I walked in reception. So what do you mean? He said, well, there was an old copy of a newspaper lying around. There was dirty coffee cups that had, had old coffee just left around. And he said, that wasn't what we were in. And he said, well, what, why was that the case? And he went, well, for a team that talks about attention to detail, what I saw in that reception area was not an organisation that took attention to detail seriously. Mm. It was erratic and inconsistent. So the first challenge he was, was if we talk about attention to detail and getting things right, that applies to everybody. That's not just for the drivers or for the engineers. We all have to be united behind one common set of standard behaviours, which in this case was paying attention to detail and making sure things look right. Mm. So he was amazing that he took that attention to detail and applied it to so many different aspects of Mercedes. But then again, take this and apply it for anyone listening to it. They go, okay, so what can I do? Well, think about, it doesn't have to be attention to detail. This is the idea because then that becomes a gimmick. Think about the behaviours that are most important here. You might say things like respect. So again, we'll take another rugby example of one of our interviewees, Clive Woodward. He said, it's easy to say, oh, we've got to respect each other, guys, when you come together as a team. But who's arguing for disrespect? So who's going in and saying, no, I disagree with that. I think disrespect is a way. Nobody is. Nobody, yeah. so, mo so most people go, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Respect is something. And then the conversation stops. What 
Woodward did to his immense credit was he went, what does respect now look like in behaviours? If you genuinely respect somebody, give me an example of what that would look like in a tangible form. And he describes, he left the room and he came back and led by Johnson and Delalio and Jason Leonard, they came back and went timekeeping for meetings, really pisses us off. That when people turn up late for meetings or they arrive for meetings and they've not done the pre-work or they turn out on the training pitch and they're warming up when they get on the pitch rather than having done that before the session starts, it really pisses us off. So they said, well, respect then is about turning up 10 minutes earlier for meetings. So they had that phrase that 10 minutes early is on time. So you've already done the work and you sat there ready to actually then implement it. So they called it the Lombardi rule or the 10 minute early rule. But the idea was that respect isn't just a word we say. It's a behavior that manifests itself in turning up prepared and ready mm. for other people. So this is where you can take the total wolf example, translate it into what Clive Woodward talks about and then say, so what does it look like in your world? I'll give you a funny story that I remember doing some work in a, uh, with a business where the guy was saying, oh, I want a meritocracy in my world. So okay. A what? Well, I said that. I went, what does that mean? He said, I want everyone to feel equal. So I don't care how old you are, your seniority, your right. experience. If you've got an idea, I want you to feel you can speak up and you can share it and everyone just accepts it. So I said, that sounds amazing, what you're doing. He went, oh, do you think so? I said, yeah. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? Ask anything you like. We're a meritocracy. I said, why do you have reserved car parking spaces then for the senior leadership? He went, what? I said, well, why do you have reserved car parking spaces there? But now when they walk in the building, you're saying that everybody's equal. But the car parking policy shows that there's a clear hierarchy. My point wasn't to get him, but I was saying there's an inconsistency in mm. your leadership there. What you say doesn't match with what you do. So you're talking a good game and that's great, but you're not backing it up in tangible behaviours. And he said, do you think it matters? I said, I'd estimate 80% of the time, nobody will care. But I guarantee there'll be a 20% of the occasions where you say to people, I just need you to trust me, guys. I just need you to believe in me. And when you're asking them to trust in you, that's the moment the red brain will remember those car parking spaces and go, oh, I'm not sure. And that's what then could lead you into rocky waters. So the reason I mention that is that when you hear, when people read in the media and they go, oh, the coach has lost the dressing room. You hear it a lot in, in Yeah, football. you hear that a lot. And it's an easy phrase to use. You go, well, what does that mean? And the answer is, what you say doesn't match up to what you do. Somewhere in that environment, hypocrisy has started to take hold. And we're hardwired not to follow hypocrites. We're hardwired to be suspicious about people that talk a good game and don't necessarily back it up. And so again, we're talking about culture here. This is just one of the other facets of it. Mm. But it's, does what you say, the standards that you demand, are they adopted by everybody in that organisation. Because if they're not, you need to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, it creates dysfunction and dissatisfaction. Yeah, there's something about the, the safe environment, isn't, isn't there, that helps people contribute more to an organisation and then the overall result is a better one. Yeah, so that lovely phrase that you've just used there, Andy, is one that if we pause and look at it, a safe environment, you go, well, of course saved it, but... There's some really brilliant work done on this by an organisational psychologist at Harvard, a lady called uh, Amy Edmondson. And back in the early 1990s, she was doing her PhD and she went into hospitals in the Boston area and she was looking at the best hospitals and the worst hospitals and what was the difference between them. And what she found was that the best hospitals had the highest near misses, 
the highest accident rates, the highest cock-ups, the highest errors. The worst hospitals had the lowest levels. And she's looking at it going, this doesn't make sense. No. The best hospitals are making more cock-ups than the worst. That one question led her deeper and deeper. And what she found was the best hospitals had a culture of what she calls psychological safety. And what psychological safety means is when people made a mistake, they'd put the hand up quickly, say, I've made a mistake there. And they weren't worried about the consequences of being hammered for it or being disciplined or having somebody take the piss out of them because they knew they were safe in that environment. So people went, okay, fine, let's learn from it and we'll avoid it next time. So they were making mistakes faster, learning from them and therefore leading to high performance. The worst hospitals had a culture where no safety was there. So when you made a mistake, keep your head down. Don't say anything. Point the finger. So no learning happens because nobody's safe enough to share that learning and make sure that we collectively we become stronger. So again, when you think about this, if we relate this to rugby, psychological safety is key. Because in a game, there's going to be mistakes. There's Mm. going to be cock-ups. So do you have an environment where People go, I made that mistake. This is what I learned from it. This is how I'm going to get better next time. And we can move on collectively. Or do you have a culture where people go, it wasn't my mistake. You you didn't do this. Yeah. You didn't, And you get the finger pointing. So learning doesn't happen because you, the red brain is aroused and then it's clicks. Yeah. And you're also going to be more reluctant to try things because you don't want to make a mistake. Bingo. Exactly. So why would you do that if you know you're going to get hammered in the review afterwards? Why would you play with that freedom? if you think that the coaches or your teammates are going to punish you when you get in the review afterwards. So psychological safety is, it's an easy term to use, but actually it's essential to high performance because high performance by definition means that sometimes you're going to stretch out your comfort zone and fail. Mm. So how that failure is then perceived by yourself and others around you determines whether you're going to go back again and learn from it or whether you're going to go back into your shell and your comfort zone. Yeah, it's about understanding, isn't it, that high performers haven't always been high performers they exactly yeah have, have the Nims purchase stuff yeah how long are you going to be shit is it for before you get good 100 percent. what's the best answer you've been given because at the start of your podcast you guys always ask what does high performance look like what does yeah. high performance mean to you what's the what's the best answer you guys have been given we've done over 75 of these interviews now and What's interesting is we've never had a consistent answer to that question of what is high performance. And I like the fact that there's an inconsistency because it says high performance is different for everybody. So a bit like when you were saying it, for anyone listening to this, that they go, well, I'm never going to be an Olympic champion. Yeah, yeah, but high performance isn't about medals or your bank account or trophies won. High performance might be just being the best dad you can be, Mm. spending more time with your partner. It might be if you're a teacher, the sort of developing a kid that has been troubled. So high performance is for you to define. It's not for the external world to come along and give you a definition. And that's what we've found with all our high performers, that there's no single answer that you say that, so that you're now a high performer because you've fitted this. But when we were sort of reflecting on it, we were sort of trying to think of, we should have an answer to this question. Where it came for us is we were doing an interview and it was, just when lockdown was easing and uh, I'd made arrangements that we were going to meet with Phil Neville, Phil Neville, the former Manchester United and Everton and England footballer. Yeah. Him and his brother and other guys that he grew up with at Manchester United own a hotel opposite Old Trafford football ground. So we met him in his hotel and when he comes in, 
I mean, this is his hotel, right? So he's being like the gracious host he is and he's an incredibly nice bloke. And he's like, can I get you a cup of tea, guys? So me and Jake and Will and Finn, the guys in uh, on the podcast, we're all sort of having a cup of tea and chatting. And I'd read before it that during lockdown, Phil had opened up his hotel for free for NHS workers. So anyone that was working for the NHS could come and stay at his hotel for That's free. That's right, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, right. So I made a comment to Phil and said, oh, fair play to you for that. I'm really impressed by what you did. It was so community-minded. And he said to us, he went, well, you know, you've just got to do the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. So, Ooh. yeah, thanks. And I went, just say that again, Phil. <laughs> and he went, what? And I went, what did you just say? What was your answer there? And he went, do the best you can with what you've got in the moment you're in. And I scribbled it down right away. And I said to Jake, and afterwards I went, that's the best definition of high performance I've heard. That sums it up for me. Because what he's saying is do the best you can, first of all. Well, my best might be different than your best. Mm. So it's going to be unique, first of all. With the resources you've got. Right, okay, so what do I know at this moment in time? What can I do at this moment in time? So you might look back 10 years later and go, I'd have done that better. Different. You've got different resources now. So it tells you about being in the moment, but then in the moment you're in, it's almost like just in that moment, give it your absolute best. So to me, that was the most eloquent definition of it that it's we good. heard. And it actually came about not when we asked the question. It was just a philosophy that Phil has obviously adopted throughout his whole life of just do the best you can with the, in the, with the resources you have in the moment you're in. So... I asked him politely, I said, can I nick that? <laughs> We're going to wrap things up now, but before I let you go, I want you to give some advice to the person or persons listening to this <laughs> that is maybe not necessarily stuck in a rut. They might be at any level. They might be you know, close to being a high performer. Yep. They might not know what they want to do, whatever, but they want to take that next step. They want to be better. Where does someone start? What's the best bit of advice you could give someone that wants to be successful yeah okay i mean i'm reluctant to give advice to anybody because i've made that many cockles myself that i'm not sure i would trust it but i can share in my experience what i think i've seen work well if anyone's listening to this and thinking okay how do i take some of these ideas and do it i would summarize where you start with this in three simple words success leaves clues and the reason i say that is first of all you set the parameters of what success looks like so it doesn't matter what anyone else says, you tell me what it is. So it might be if you're working in sales, you might go, who's your best customer? Who's the customer that you have the best relationship with? That might be your definition of success. It might be if you're a teacher, what's the class where it's, everything seems to sing for you, where it goes really well? If you're a parent, it might be what are the moments where I felt like I'm being the best parent I can be? You define that. And then once you've set the parameters of what success looks like, do a proper forensic review of it. So don't attribute stuff and go, oh, we were just having a good day or, you know, uh, I got lucky with that. No, no. Let's have a look at when that moment, what were you doing that is both replicable and controllable? So encouraging you to do is look for how you behaved and extrapolate it. So it might have been, you know what? I was really passionate about that. I was really enthusiastic. I was really good at listening. I was empathetic. Whatever it is, look at the behaviours that were consistently present when success occurred. Now, the reason I advocate that is there's two reasons for this, Andy. The first one is, who doesn't want to look at success? Mm. Who doesn't have an opinion on it? So you're not looking for your mistakes and having to deal with the embarrassment or maybe the 
discomfort of it. You're looking at your successes. So it's a welcome experience that is encouraging to be part of it. But the second thing is confidence is built on evidence. For you to believe that you're capable of something, you need to have some degree of evidence that you're capable of doing it. So the way is, look at where you've done it before. So on those two things, success leaves clues says, look at when you're successful, look at the behaviours that are consistently present when you do it, and then think about how can you structure your life to do more of those behaviours. So it might be, there are all kinds of different angles you can take this down though, but it might be that, I'll give you a personal example, that lockdown was really good for me with my two children, of just being present for them. I adopted something called the five minute rule. So what I'd noticed was that sometimes I was traveling, if I'd been away from home and the, you're driving home and you get on the driveway and somebody might phone you or you might be on the phone and so I'd pull up on the driveway and you sort of finish your phone call and get in the house. And when I spoke to my wife about it, she said, you tell us that you're really enthusiastic, that you miss us when you're away and you can't wait to get home. She said, but you sit on the driveway for 20 minutes when you arrive. And I went, it's because I'm on an important call. She said, you didn't ask me what the reason was. What I'm telling you is your behavior doesn't look quite as enthusiastic to get in the house as what you tell us. So what you say doesn't match up with what you do. Mm. So when I thought about that, I thought, well, if I wouldn't be seen as an enthusiastic partner mm. and parent, how do I do it? So one of the ways was I put in place the five minute rule. So whenever I'm driving home, when I get five minutes away from home, if I'm on the phone, I pull into an area where I can finish the phone call before I go any further. Or if I'm not on the phone, the phone gets turned off five minutes before I get home. So I don't get sidetracked by a phone call or a message when I pull up at home. So my behavior, when I get there and get out of the car and get in, demonstrates the enthusiasm that I say I have to be home. Right. Does that make sense? So, yeah. so you take those behaviors and say, so how do I structure my life to do more of those behaviors that give me the satisfaction and the enjoyment I get? That makes sense. That makes sense. So you just got to structure your behaviors so they reflect... And reflect regularly. So one of the things I encourage when I work with teams is that do regular reflection mm. because that stops you then going into the deluded state. You think that you're playing a good game or you think that you're showing up and do problem behaviours. Get feedback of your teammates. So sometimes what I'll do is facilitate that with teams and you might have a player that says, oh, I think I'm this and that and that and then the teammates go, that's not what we're seeing, mate. Mm. But you're not attacking the person, you're attacking their behaviour. I can change my behavior. You're not asking me to change the person I am. So getting regular feedback, like what my wife did to me in terms of when you pull up on the driveway, you can make all the excuses you like, but the behavior doesn't match what you told us you want to be. So you can do something about that. She wasn't saying that I'm not an yeah. enthusiastic parent or partner. She was just saying what you tell us isn't being mirrored in how you behave. So I can do something around that, which is where coming up with a simple idea like the five minute rule has helped me be the person that I want to be, not the person that I sometimes can be. Some great advice. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been a privilege, mate. Honestly, I've loved it. I really appreciate it. I said to you off air before, I know how much hard work goes into a podcast. This is the work in the shadows. And uh, the fact that you've taken the time to read the book and to listen oh, it's is a great really book. humbling. So thank you. It's an amazing book. And um, it's high performance, lessons from the best on becoming the best. It's out now. I'm just going to read. I don't usually do this. But I'm just going to read a couple <laughs> of the people's names that have you know, read the book on the back and what they've said about it. Toto Wolf, the head of F1 Mercedes, full of valuable principles with real world relevance to people's everyday lives. Dame Kelly Holmes, fantastic, will help you think like an Olympic champion. 
Frank Lampard, amazing, will teach you the mindset and habits of champions. I mean, Ant Middleton, he's just said, read this book. He's <laughs> a all these advice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know if he has read the book. That's, <laughs> no, that's, that, the, the props that you've got from the people that, that have read the book and contributed to the book um, are bang on. Amazing read. So if you're looking for a, a book for Christmas or you think well, someone could you, do mate. with it, make sure you go and get it. And I wouldn't usually do this either, but have listened to their podcast as well. It's called The Lightfulness <laughs> Podcast. It's awesome. That's it for 2021. We're taking a couple of weeks off for Christmas, but it's a great chance for you to go back through some of the 47 episodes that we've had over the past two years, and there's been some incredible stories and interviews there, so make sure you go back, check them out. Also, if you want to do me a massive favor, share an episode you've enjoyed with someone else, either directly or on social media, or both. We'd really genuinely appreciate all the support, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more amazing stories. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.